Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast, and I'm your host, Chris Panetta. And here we are downtown in Salem, Oregon, again for another episode. And as always, just like to quickly say, uh, this podcast is connected to our Leadership Institute in town, Groundwork. Started a few years ago, and the goal is to raise the tide of leadership in our community. Our vision here is to be a catalyst for transformational change. And we are not the transformational change, but we believe that together as a community, we can accomplish some pretty amazing things. So as such, we thought, you know, about three and a half years ago, let's start a podcast and see where it takes us and to start talking to uh, leaders in our community. Since then, it's expanded and we've talked to leaders all over the place and we have thousands and thousands of people that download and listen, which I would have never imagined. And, you know, we had talked to a lot of amazing people. We have 60 something episodes. So go back and scroll through, find what you like and give it a listen. So thank you to any returning listeners and welcome to any new listeners to the show. So for today, an exciting one, we have an, an, another author. I always like when we have authors because they have amazing things to talk about because they spent countless hours <laughs> writing a book, which not many people do or are willing to do. So Cassie Holmes is in town today. We have our ba- banquet for our this year in our Leadership Institute. That's a year long. Every year we kind of graduate a new set of leaders from all over the community. And we always invite a keynote speaker and so we have them in town. I like to grab a, you know, as much time as I can to get them on the show and have them share some of their ideas. Cassie is a professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management and an expert on time and happiness. Her research examines such questions as how focusing on time rather than money increases happiness, how the meaning of happiness changes over the course of one's lifetime, and how much happiness people enjoy from extraordinary versus ordinary experiences. Cassie's academic research on the role of time in cultivating well-being has been published in leading academic journals and highlighted by NPR and New York Times, among others. She's earned an early career award from both the Association of Consumer Research and Society of Consumer Psychology. So in the search for speakers, you know, it was real simple. When we came across her work and what she could speak on, what she could contribute to our institute, it was a no-brainer. And I've read... I'll be honest, I haven't been able to dive into the book a lot, but I've read the first a few pages and I like it and I skipped ahead and I saw your diagrams of how you managed. Anyways, I'll let you get into it, but I'm sure. I'm keen on getting into this because one of the things I've had to learn the last few years is how to manage my time better. And my our benefactor here, my boss, I guess, is so strict with how he manages his time. It's enlightened me to time blocking and just how to make the most of your day. So I genuinely am going to dive into this book, and uh, we're giving it to all of our leaders tonight. So hopefully, you know, it can start a little. Maybe you'll have some, but a fan base here in Salem because we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna spread the good word up here. So I'm gonna stop there and let you introduce yourself. Is that yeah. is that cool? Sure. But before I introduce myself, I will give you some <laughs> time advice. One of Please. The, the strategies for us time poor folks such as yourself who doesn't actually have time to read a book. Actually, people who don't have time, I ask them to complete the sentence. I don't have time to. One of the most frequent sort of completions of that sentence is people say, I don't have time to read for pleasure. Mm. And so something that you can do is use a strategy called bundling. Bundling. And so this is taking something that you don't necessarily like to do, perhaps like commuting or folding laundry or 
if some people don't like exercise and actually bundle it with an activity you do uh, like to do because then it makes that time feel more enjoyable. So mm. Happier Hour is also available on audiobook. There we go. And I narrate it. So you can, while you are driving around Salem, listen to me tell you about happiness and time. And so you don't have to worry about actually going through the pages. <laughs> So. Well, I actually love love reading, as you can look around my office. <laughs> yes. like Almost all these books in here I've been reading and and bad bad podcast hosts. Obviously, I, you know, I should have read the book and had like notes I could open up and tell you. So maybe round two, I will. But my biggest excuse is I'm in the right in the thick of PhD dissertation. <laughs> I'm like, I'm reading so much. I'm going to my brain's going to explode. But what you just said about bundling my my leisure time when I get to read or listen to whatever I want to listen to is when I'm at the gym every morning. So ah, I go there. there I'm at go. there at 5 a.m., about there an hour and a half. And so I have my rotation of what I'm listening to. Yeah. So I'm going to put this in that Perfect. rotation. Yeah. So wonderful. And go to your initial question of who am I to introduce myself. So as you said, I'm Cassie Holmes, and I am a professor at UCLA teaching in the business school and my throughout my career, my research has been looking at time and how we should invest it to experience greater happiness. And what I mean by happiness is feeling more joy in our days as well as satisfied about our lives. So it's not just the sort of fleeting, frivolous feeling. Our happiness is super important yeah. uh, because when we take care of our emotional well-being, it allows us to show up better uh, within our communities, within our families, for other people in the work that we do, et cetera. So happiness is what the goal is, satisfaction, having a sense of meaning, having a sense of when we look back on our days and our life overall, how do we avoid feeling regret? So that's the goal. And I've been at a business school, which is sort of an interesting place to do this type of research and because basically I'm a social psychologist. So what are decisions that we can make that will influence our experience and our yeah. judgment? And so my research has been on time and happiness throughout my career. I initially, I started, I did my PhD at Stanford in the marketing department looking at chooser satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, what I'm really interested in is like, chooser satisfaction, but it's satisfaction about their lives more generally. And I, my first job out of my PhD was I was on the faculty at Wharton in Philly. And I loved it. It was invigorating. But being from Southern California, mm. I also love sunshine. Mm. And so when UCLA reached out six years ago, I was like, yes, I want to raise my children in sunshine and mm. where they can play soccer instead of it's actually like this March day where my little one was we he was like three and we were having him play soccer yeah. quote unquote and it was on a pavement covered in ice in march <laughs> and i'm like this isn't how one should play soccer yeah. they should play on grass and sunshine yeah. so we moved to ucla so but, to when you were in yeah. when you were in philly was that because i know you start the book sharing a kind of your a point in life where you were at was it yes. when you were there yes okay. exactly and i started the the story starting the book really motivating it was one of these days that i think so many people can relate to where i was rushing in that particular day i had was invited to give a talk up at columbia in new york 
And it was like that my presentation was sandwiched within between these like back to back meetings. And then I had this like networking dinner. And then I was rushing to catch the very last train that would get me home to my four month old and my husband asleep in Philly. And I did make the train that night. But I remember so vividly, I was sort of depleted. I was squished, like slunken down into my seat with my head leaning against the window, looking out the window. And as the darkness was sort of whizzing by, I was like, I don't know if I can keep up Mm -hmm. between the pressures of work, wanting to be a good partner, wanting to be a good friend, wanting to be a good parent, never-ending pile of chores. There simply weren't enough hours in the day to get it all done, let alone Mm -hmm. to do any of it well, let alone to enjoy any of it along the way. And I know now that what I was feeling is is what now we refer to in the literature as time poverty. This acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I needed to sort of figure out how to combat this. Like I could either quit my job, which sounded like the, the right solution if, you know, like, and I'm sure so many people in those moments feel like that. Like I don't have enough time to do it all, so I can't do it and something has to give. And I was like, I just, maybe it's my job. But fortunately, I didn't quit. And instead, I redirected my research agenda. This is what I'm going to study now. (laughs) Yeah, to basically figure out how should we be investing the time that we have so that we feel satisfied at the end of the day, so that at the end of the week, instead of looking back and that feeling of depletion and being stressed and overwhelmed, and unhappy, are there ways that even if we're busy, we can invest our time to feel satisfied and fulfilled? Hmm. And that is what I, I actually, before writing the book, I developed a course that I've been teaching to MBAs and executive MBAs at UCLA. And it was so profoundly rewarding to see the impact that it had on my students, both like during the course as I was seeing their experience and they were writing in their assignments. But also now, I, this is four years ago that I had the first one and I continue to hear from my students of like how it continues to show up in their lives. And that's why when I was approached about writing a book, I was like, yes, because the stuff, the science, yeah. the research can help people. And I wanted to reach more people. So that's what Happier Hour is. It's like, even the assignments that I give my students, I share as yeah. exercises in the book so that people can actually apply them and experience mm-hmm. the benefits immediately. And also, it is not an academic, like, I, I had to learn how to rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of story and anecdote so that readers can understand or see how this relates and shows up so clearly in our lives and that it resonates. So there's a lot of me in there too. I'm like, yeah, be vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, You'll learn, you'll learn my sources of joy as well as some, hear about some painful moments, but all in the service of hopefully sort of connecting with folks. Yeah. Yeah. I love listeners know how much I love stories. It was kind of the emphasis of my my master's program, and I just love storytelling. I teach a, a collegiate storytelling course as well, and oh, cool. and 
the most powerful stories are usually bad stories about ourselves. The times when we messed up, <laughs> times when we learned something, because that's what where people can relate to. So I love that that's what you put in there. Different writing, for sure, than the academic. Yeah. Writing. I mean, it's it was a learning process, as I shared at lunch today. It took me an entire year to write one chapter, <laughs> and then the next year to write all of the other chapters, yeah. because it just took that long yeah. to learn how to write it. Because in academic papers, you know, what we do is we make an argument, and then we have the research to support it. Yeah. So this, though, you invert that because you show rather than tell. Yeah. So you share a story to show the situation, yeah. and then you conclude with the research and the yeah. sort of takeaway, mm-hmm. which it's it, it's fun. Now that I've learned how to, how to do it, yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll write another book. But mark my words, I will not at this current <laughs> moment. I'm like, it's so consuming. It took too much time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So- I want to go back to time poverty because yes. with the videos, you know, we're trying to find, we have speakers that come in to, to, to speak at our institute that some of us have personal connections to. So it's like, you know, long history. We know who they are. We know what they talk about. But at our last, at our last one, we always try to get like, let's go get somebody that we don't know, somebody new that's going to bring in this fresh perspective that has a really cool topic that they can dive into that's going to resonate with our leaders. And I remember watching some of your videos and that's what caught my attention was this idea of time poverty, partly because time has just in the last, I don't know, eight or so years, maybe, you know, it's my whole idea of time has changed drastically where I've probably, I feel like it's been a good thing, but perhaps I, I fall into the time poverty sometimes because I, I've had this hyper sensitivity to how much you can actually accomplish with the time you have. And it's caused me to realize, gosh, I actually don't have a lot of time. So, I mean, the last decade of my life, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning to start my day, all because, well, if I get these things done early, then I have more time the rest of the day, right? So I, I, I wake up early. Sometimes I stay up late. I usually try to go bed early, though, so I get good sleep. But my, my day is very regimented. And if it gets out of that regiment, then I almost get thrown off. I almost, sometimes I get migraines. Like, I have a physical response when I don't get my routine in, it's it's odd. So perhaps it was selfish that time poverty, I want to hear some of that. <laughs> but that's what caught my attention. And I had some initial questions. I have lots of questions, but initial one is just kind of generally dive more into what you mean by time poverty. Because when you say that, it makes me think of poverty and how poverty is is almost generational, that it just repeats itself. And and to break out of poverty is a very hard thing to do. And and is it this? Is there any similarities to time poverty? Is that like what was the reason why you chose that that term poverty to follow yeah. up toward time? Because it's the scarceness, that hmm. sense of limitation, and with that limitation, it has these really sort of detrimental effects in these other places and domains, and even our cognition, like what we're thinking about when something feels scarce, it's it makes us so that we're not thinking wholly. We're so sort of tuned into and absorbed by the moment that... Fear sets in. Yeah, and reaction. You're just reactive as opposed to proactive. Mm -hmm. You're more prevention-focused as opposed to promotion-focused. And so what we... And the time poverty, this sense, it's it's an individual, it's a subjective feeling... Mm -hmm. 
of having too little time to do what you set out to do. Yeah. And and so there is that distinction with actual financial poverty, which is more objective. <laughs> but the limiting effects are really detrimental. And it is pervasive. pervasive. So my team, we conducted a national poll that showed that nearly half of Americans feel like they don't have enough time to do what they want to and need to do. And not only is it pervasive, and, and also you sort of, we saw in our results that it um, shows up. So it's it experienced there most acutely for, it tends to be for moms hmm. compared to dads, working parents yeah. to those without kids. But those are the trends, but we see in the data that all types of people feel like they're lacking for time, even those without kids and those who don't work for pay. And so I wanted to really sort of dig in and figure out what drives this. And we're still in the process of figuring that out, but also recognizing the really detrimental effects. So when people feel time poor, they are less healthy, so less likely to spend time exercising. They're less nice because when we're in a rush, we're less likely to slow down and mm -hmm. help others out. We're less confident, so we don't feel like we can achieve what we set out to do, and huh. we're less happy. Now, I can sort of speak to the fact that I was really interested in this in a time-poor state, and as I mentioned, like I was considering actually quitting. Yeah. And then the question is, well, are people who have a whole lot of available time, are they in fact happier? And that's an empirical question that we've tested. So we've gone on to test. And so we looked at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. And our, we've looked across studies. And one of the studies, we analyzed data from tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans looking at relating the amount of discretionary time they have. So the amount of time yeah. they spent on a regular day on activities or things that they want to do versus have to do. Mm -hmm. And the pattern of results was super interesting. So it showed an upside down U shape. Hmm. So that's interesting because it goes down on both ends of the spectrum. Yes, people with too little discretionary time are less happy. So that is us who are time poor and that's because we feel greater feelings of stress yeah but what's super interesting is that people who have there is such thing as having too much time idle time right yeah and we are averse to feeling idle when we sort of spend all the hours of our days with nothing to show for it it makes us feel unproductive mm -hmm. it undermines our sense of purpose we get into trouble well, we get, yeah, like that's a behavioral consequence. We get into trouble, but we also feel like we don't have a sense of purpose. It like yeah. it pulls out our sense of satisfaction and and we find that people are less happy. But interestingly, there's a pretty wide range where it's actually flat on top. So yeah. I said it's an arc, but the top of the arc is like flat for the yeah. whole middle portion, which suggests that it's not actually, there's no relationship between how much available time you have and your happiness. And so that actually is pointing to something that I think is really important is except at the very extremes, it's not so much about how much time you have. It's really how you invest the time that you have available that leads to greater yeah. satisfaction and happiness. And so 
there's lots of different pieces of that that we can dig into. And you tell me what you want to talk about. It's like, how do you we lessen or sort of for the time for poor folks, what are some takeaways? Or we can talk about, well, what are some ways to invest time to make us feel happier? Yeah. Well, so I'm I'm geeking out right now just as you're talking about these studies and 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 the concept of time while I don't think about it the same way you do I mean it's important to all of us because time is something that's constant that you just can't you can't change it's just it's there and we use it wisely or or not right and it's going to keep passing but I am just so always thinking about it mm. and and I'll I'll share a few examples of how I'm always thinking about it and I would love some of your insight on any of it. So I'll share a few sort of quotes that I try to live by that that impact how I see time. And I might even share some of these at the banquet tonight. But one of them is, I can't remember who said this, but one of them is, the path of someday leads to the town of nowhere. That's one of my favorites. That has everything to do with time. Yeah. And another one is, if you if you uh, wait for tomorrow, you lost today. Another one is this, is, this is my favorite one. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. So I I like those those are those are motivating, um, just quotes and ideas yeah. that that push me to make sure I'm using my time wisely. Yeah. Because there is no guarantee for tomorrow, and and you know having kids really transform my whole lens on 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 time because some days I get to see them, I don't know an hour if that because things are so packed and I'm so involved in different things and and. Part of that hurts me a little bit that I missed out on whatever they got to do that day or say that day, and so time set my sensitivity to time is so diff it's just uh -huh. changed over That's the last so few years. Cute, yeah. And another thing that I'm always thinking about is, is if you break up time of your week or your day into percentages. I heard of I was listening to a podcast the other day at the gym, and they were talking about how we grossly overvalue missions and holidays because at the end of our life. Those aren't even like a fraction of, those not even, there's not even a decimal, they're not even a, like a, a percentage point of our time that we've had total if we live till 80 years old, let's say. The vacations and holidays make up a very, very small portion. The majority of our life was made up from what we do every day. It's, it's the micro things that actually become the biggest elements. So what I do for the first 90 minutes of my day, overall, that's maybe perhaps 10% of my week. And so maybe I can't master my whole day, but I can master you know, the first 90 minutes or the, this 3% here, this 3% there, this 4% here, and they add up. And so I think about time like that as well, that if I, you know, I'm not going to master my whole life, but I can get really good about how I spend the first hour and a half of my day. And then I can get really good about the time that I do have with my kids. So even if it is only an hour, hour and a half a day that, that I can be really intentional in that time, right? Or the weekends when I get all my time with my kids, am I using it wisely, which I'm, you know, I will admit I don't. Sometimes my idea of a, of relaxing is literally staring at the wall and in a quiet place. <laughs> and when you have little kids, it's never quiet and mm -hmm. you can't just stare at a wall. So I'm, there's plenty there maybe for you to respond to, but that's at least how I have come to think of time. I, I, I never find myself too much with like idle time. What were you calling it? Discretion. Yeah. Sort of too much discretionary. Okay. Time. Too much discretionary yeah. time. I, I don't find myself with that too often, but when I do, I find myself not using it well. Mm -hmm. So that's why I like a routine and schedule. Because if I just don't have anything to do, I end up wasting it, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I 
I don't know, binge watch a show or something. Right. I just don't use it wisely. And so I'm, I've had to rely on my routines to make sure that I'm using my time properly. Yeah. So I'm going to stop and let you maybe share any of your thoughts or, <laughs> or insight there. I mean, there's so many pieces of that that I can sort of pull the thread and we can unpack. And first of all, I would say, where do we start? So like, it's interesting, the quotes that you're, you're picking up on is really against this idea of waiting for later. That is pulling the, the, the way that you want to live, the things that are important to you, pull them to now It don't wait. So it's sort of like a seize the day type yeah. philosophy, which is so wonderful and important because what it does pick up on is the fact that our time is passing. Yeah. Our time is ultimately limited. The thing, though, that in order to sort of offset this sense of stress from feeling t like the limitations of time within our day, which is really negative, but there's actually really positive effects of recognizing that our time in life is limited because mm -hmm. what it does, taking that perspective, is it makes us make the most of our time. It mm -hmm. makes us not wait for tomorrow to do those important things like plant the tree or whatever else is really important to you to invest in your relationships, to yeah. hang out with your kids and sort of soak it up and not putting it off. It's like, oh, you know, like tomorrow or next week or on, like later yeah. with this sort of general sense of later. It makes us spend the time now. And in work that we're doing right now, we're actually finding that thinking taking a broader perspective of time, thinking about our life overall and our years, as opposed to thinking hour by hour, which when we feel time poor, we are very much in an hour by hour mm -hmm. mindset. But we find that when people take this broader perspective of time, they actually experience greater meaning in their life, greater satisfaction in their life, and more happiness in their days. And the reason is because when we take this broader perspective, it really pulls to the surface and clarifies those things that matter to us, yes. our values, our purpose, like those big goals mm -hmm. and our like the people mm -hmm. really like if we're talking about what ultimately matters, it is the people. I have this assignment in my class and actually talk about it in the book, this exercise where I have people write their own eulogy and Okay, I think I saw this when I was going through, yeah. skimming through the book. And the, the graphics all caught my attention. Initial reaction is like, what are you talking about, lady? You're meant to be talking about happiness, and you're, here you are Writing making here. me think about my death. And it's actually not an exercise about death at all. It is really an articulation of the life you want to live. How do you want to be remembered? Mm -hmm. What words do you want people to say about you? What legacy do you want to leave? And when people write their own eulogies, what it shows is what they do value. It shows the role of relationships, but it also shows within oneself. Like when I ask, how, what words do you want people to use to describe you? That's picking up on, well, really, how should you be engaging today? Yeah. It's not about the end of your life. Yeah. It's like, and so by taking this broader life perspective, it informs how we spend our upcoming hours. It's yeah. not waiting for later so that we can ultimately and will ultimately feel regret. It is making sure that we spend now mm -hmm. on these things that are really important to us. And so, and I would actually counsel you away from thinking about the percentage of 
how much of your day or how much of your life is one way or the other, because the way we experience and remember things, the story we tell, the narrative of our life, it's not a summing up. What we remember are the peak moments, what, so the most intensely positive or most intensely negative, as well as the endings. And this is based off of research by Danny Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner, and his team. And so what that it highlights is that we have agency and control over where we focus our attention. Yeah. What do we want to make the peaks? And yes, actually, it can be these super ordinary moments. In my work, I have looked at the role of ordinary moments versus extraordinary moments and how they contribute to our happiness. And what we find is that extraordinary moments <laughs> produce happiness, like, you know, life milestones, like getting married, having a baby, once in a lifetime vacations, going to incredible, you know, concerts or, you know, world famous restaurants. But also the ordinary moments, those simple moments shared with a loved one or noticing a sunset, sort of like noticing your environment yeah. or a treat, like, you know, really savoring mm -hmm. a piece of chocolate or sandwich or yeah. a glass of wine. And what we found is that among younger people, they tend to experience greater happiness from extraordinary moments than ordinary. But we found that as people get older, they gain increasing happiness from ordinary moments such that among older people, they feel as much happiness from those simple moments as they do the extraordinary. And the reason why is not because of age per se, but as we get older, we start recognizing that our time in life is finite. And therefore, all of our moments are precious. And so actually, younger people, when, we, when they come to recognize that their time in life is finite, yeah. they start to savor more. They find the joy in those ordinary moments. Actually, the pandemic was like this big, almost natural experiment where, sadly, it highlighted to all of us that life is finite. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. and... Our moments are precious. And so you started seeing this savoring yeah. among everyone of those sort of noted, like, the, you know, you, you talked about that hour that you have with your kids, like if lucky in the day. But all of a sudden, when you think about the passing nature of time, the finiteness of our time, then that hour like it becomes really treasured yeah. and you are paying yeah. attention. You're not thinking about what's next. You're not thinking about, am I optimizing this? Mm -hmm. You're actually like, yes, yeah. I am optimizing this because this is the stuff that matters. Yeah. It pulls your attention into those really precious moments. And actually even sort of pulling back to what you started saying at the beginning with the percentages is like, yes, holidays are not a large percentage but the reason they show up so much in our narrative is because the of memories. the memories and the attention that we give to them. And we take the pictures during that time. Yeah. And tradition, the role of tradition is really powerful and ritual. But you can actually, another strategy that I share in the book is to turn some routines or daily routines into ritual to make them more special to yeah. make them more meaningful, such that something, so what routines are, are things that we do without having to think about it, right? Which is really helpful. You don't have to exert a lot of 
decision making throughout your day if you're going through your routine. So that's mm-hmm. helpful, particularly if you have like healthy and deliberate routines. Yeah. But if we're moving through our days without thinking about it, then what we want to sort of draw our attention, ritualize those really sort of special ones. So it like brings our attention into those moments. So you can make that hour with your kids, even though it's not a big percentage of the day, you can make that so influential and impactful in terms of your overall satisfaction. Yeah. And, People will experience time differently, right? What might be just another hour of my day could be, you know, a lasting memory for them, right? Uh, so the, my, I got lots of things going through my brain. I love all of this. So love it, all of it. So a few things that I thought of that I'd love some more depth on. One of them, just quick story. This is kind of a funny one, but it has to do with how you said younger people, they see time differently than than older. As we age, we start to value the ordinary more. Mm-hmm. And just recently, over oh, or Thanksgiving time, little a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, we had family in town. My wife's grandparents were in town, and and we were talking about kind of some of the funny things about like their side of the family that my wife has developed, you know. And somehow we got talking about how you know in bed when somebody when your the cold feet of your partner comes over and touches you your leg and you're like oh it's ice cold right and and you're trying to sleep and they're you know my wife always tries to snuggle up her feet next to mine but they're like ice cold and i get mad about it you know and i'm making a joke out of this like oh you know like don't you hate when the i'm talking to her grandpa don't you hate when when you know their feet are ice cold and they try to snuggle up into you and he just laughs and then he says just enjoy it He's like, just enjoy it. You got to learn to love that because you know what? She wants to snuggle with you. And I just had that thought like, you know, that's a, that's an experienced comment because yeah. he's older and he's starting to realize that that's just a wonderful thing during the day that your wife still at 70 something years old wants to snuggle with you in bed yeah. and it's okay if her feet are cold, right? And so I had that memory came to, came to mind. I thought it was just funny because it was right into with what you said, the ordinary and finding... joy in the ordinary. Another moment that from when you first started talking that I thought of, just kind of a transformational experience for me, story for me that was told to me that really started to get my brain churning on time and the seize the moment mentality. I was, you know, young, I think I was 19 or so years old, I was doing missionary work and was far from home. And I was, I was, you know, in this, in this place that I was not known to me. And we would typically, we would meet with some of the the older people in our, in our religion, you know, in our faith, in our community, in our church. And there was a couple of older missionaries that were coming and they were serving as well, but they, again, they're much older than, than I was. And, and we, they were feeding us dinner one night and we would go there every Sunday and we'd have dinner. We really loved meeting with them. Their last night, they were the hunts. So hunts, if you're listening to this, you know, know that I care about you guys deeply, but so they're the hunts and we would always talk and we'd have fun and we'd joke. But one of the times this, this, you know, this Mr. Hunt, he shared a, a story with all of us. And I can't remember why. I can't remember what we were talking about. We were talking about maybe our schedule and our routine of the day and how, you know, all the complaints that we had. You know, we were 19, 20 years old. We were complaining about all the things that were going on. And, and he said just a few years before, I guess, his, his dad had passed away. He was in a, you know, a care facility and he went to go visit him. And he tried to go visit him, you know, once a week or once every a few times a week. And he went 
one particular day. This wasn't too long before he actually passed away. It was just maybe weeks before. And his dad was in bed laying down, you know, watching watching TV and health is poor, so he can't do a whole lot more. And he, he gets in and he turns off the TV because his son's here and he kind of sits really slow up in bed, you know, and he, and, you know, my friend's acting it out, like sits up really slow and takes a deep breath and he kind of sighs just, <sighs> you know, and, and my friend kind of puts his arm around, dad, what's going on? Like things going really slow here, here at the, here at the home, like are things just going by really slow, you know, and he looks at him, he said, his dad looks at him, he shakes his head, he's all, no, son. I'm just starting to just been reflecting and thinking about how life goes by so fast mm-hmm. that I didn't get to do half the things that I wish I could have done. And then he looked at him and said, just promise me that you'll do the things that you really want to do with your time because it goes by too fast. And so he shared this story with me and I've never, I'll never forget it, but that was kind of one of those moments that got me thinking about how precious time is. Because you look at when one day I'm an old man and I can barely sit up in bed. I feel like that's going to be so far away, but it's, he's there and it wasn't Mm -hmm. and his life went by so fast. So it got me on this train of thought of seize the day, you know, seize the moment. Another thing, another, another example that I, well, two other things, and then I'll stop and let you respond. But when you were talking about, gosh, I can't remember. There's, I love, again, loved everything you were saying, but one, (laughs) there was one moment where you said something about time and how we see it. I thought of some of the things that we discuss in our framework. We talk about, you heard some of the people at lunch today talk about this idea of, you know, humanity and seeing people. And we talk a lot about that. What does it mean to see people? We talk about these different sort of mentalities and mindsets that we can have. You know, we've used Arbinger's content of inward and outward mindset. We, we now, we currently talk about, you know, being surface minded or deep minded. But when we're deep minded, we have this, it's like we, it's like we finally realize this inevitable connection that we have with everybody else. No matter if we know them or not, we're all connected. And I've found in those moments when we experience this sort of deep, authentic connection, that time no longer really matters. It's like, it's this construct that I use to organize my day and make sense of things that I only really need when I'm thinking all about me and Chris. Mm-hmm. But when I'm in, lost in somebody else's needs and their humanity, it's like time stops almost. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you're in that moment. And we all have those moments, you know, these moments of transformation where we, like you said, we notice a beautiful sunset or we're in this moment with our child or a friend or something. Time just stops to matter, stops mattering. Mm-hmm. And, and we just are lost in it. And I love those moments because I'm not worried about time in that, in that, time, in that moment. Yeah. It's just yeah. real and it's authentic and it's deep. And I'd be curious on, on any of your thoughts with that as well. And I'll stop because I just want you to respond to any, any of that. But Yeah, I want to respond to each of those. Maybe we'll start with the last one first. Those moments that are so, you're so in it that you lose sense of time. And actually, there's work that shows that one thing that offsets time poverty, or put another way, that increases our sense of how much time we have and time affluence is actually experiences of awe. So these awe-inspiring experiences, something that pulls you outside of yourself and sort of broadens your perspective on the world, even if for that moment, when we experience those experiences of awe, it actually increases our sense of how much time we have. And that really comes from expanding 
ourselves expands our sense of time and sort of the limitations of the hours of our day sort of go away. And sources of awe tend to be nature. Mm. So also that sort of deep social connection that you talked about when you're so truly connecting with another human through conversation or like if you're holding a little baby. Yeah. It can also happen from notice or sort of witnessing incredible accomplishment or creativity. Yeah. So, but yes. So exposing yourself to these moments of awe, expand our sense of time. Also, is you're picking up on like, which happens more not in these moments, but in these times where you're in flow, right? Yeah, stay Where you're flow, yeah. so engaged in what you're doing that you lose sense of time. And it's in those states of flow that you're the most creative. You're, you're working at your best. You produce the best. And so the, the interesting thing is, though, that when we're so distracted about, like, what's next and hyper-scheduled, if, if you can carve out time to protect yourself from these distractions and pull yeah. your mind not from all the other 50 things you have to do that day and let yourself be in that moment, then you're more likely to get into flow and lose sense of time. So that would be one thing. Those awe-inspiring moments do, and research supports, mm -hmm. expand our sense of time. And then I want to jump back to your first one. The cold feet. Yes, the <laughs> feet cuddles. And it's so... And I, I want to share hedonic adaptation. So this is our psychological propensity to get used to things over time. So yeah. when we do the same thing, over and over again, when we're with the same person again and again, it stops having the same emotional impact mm -hmm. that we get used to it. So we don't even notice it. And now it's good that we're adaptive when bad things happen because it makes us resilient. Right. But it's bad that we also adapt to and stop noticing and get used to yeah. really good, like simple joys, like cuddly feet. Right. <laughs> feet cuddles. And it shows up in uh, in relationships, actually, which I like the reason I always sort of touch to those is because these are the, these important, the most important thing in terms of contributing to our happiness and satisfaction in life is having these strong, supportive relationships. But the fact that, you know, these the when you decided to get married, it's like the joy of getting to go to bed in the same bed with the same person every day. And have feet cuddles was amazing, right? Was amazing. Mm -hmm. Like mind-blowing, heart-exploding happiness. But then years on, it's like, oh, they're gold. That's annoying. So I Please. But for happiness, we need to figure out how do we offset our hedonic adaptation so that we do continue to find joy in those joys in our everyday. Ordinary. Yeah. And recognizing that our times left are limited is one way. And there's actually an exercise that I'll share tonight and, and I share in the book. It's counting times left. Yeah. And if you were to count sort of how many times out of all the times you've done it in the past and then estimate how many times will you actually do this thing in the future in the way that it happens now? Like, yeah. And oftentimes our sort of ordinary joyful moments involve another person and like accounting for the fact that circumstances in your life will likely change. Circumstances in their life will likely change. And so you sort of do a real estimate. Okay, how many times in the future? And then of your total times, what percentage do you have left? 
more often than not, is significantly less than people think. So like counting dinners with your parents, me counting coffee dates with my daughter who's seven and our trips to the coffee shop that we do weekly now, I calculated that, you know, in just a few years, she's going to want to go to the coffee shop with her friends instead of me. And so we'll be less frequent than every week. And then she's going to go off to college and then she's going to go live somewhere, you know, in Mm -hmm. New York or whatever, if she's anything like me. And then, so I calculated, we have 36% of our coffee dates together left. That's way less than half. And she's only seven. Yeah. And so that recognition, it, it makes me soak up those coffee dates. If I don't, I mean, not to sort of put too much of a point on it, but if you were to count how many feet cuddles, you know, where mm-hmm. you're in bed at the same time, because in our crazy lives, right? It's yeah. like you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning mm-hmm. and your wife hopefully isn't. And, you know, you might be getting into bed earlier. So it's like even yeah. those circumstances, like of having the opportunity for feet to meet, you know, at the foot of the bed. So counting times left and it makes it makes us, it helps offset hedonic adaptation, as does turning routine into ritual, which I already talked about, as does in, influ- in sort of pulling in variety into one's activities. So there's interesting work as we're sort of in the domain of relationships and romantic relationships. There's work that shows that couples who are do more varied or novel activities together report greater relationship satisfaction and show Mm. greater relationship longevity. And so even figuring out how do we sort of have new experiences together such that it draws our attention back to that person and Mm -hmm. you're sort of like growing or continuing to grow and notice the other person. So variety Mm -hmm. is another. There's lots of, there's actually several other strategies, but those were a couple I wanted to talk about. Yeah. The the, the counting the times, uh, like you mentioned with your daughter in the coffee shop, that's a a really powerful way to to see things. My, My wife and I did something similar I don't know, was it last year, this this time? But it was it was for our kids and the amount of times they got to see their grandparents. And we were just thinking, well, they get to see... Um, my parents actually live with us, so they see my parents all the time. But my wife's parents, they see them maybe twice a year, you know? And so we started to think, like, twice a year, our oldest, you know, in 10 years, she'll be an adult. So, gosh, that's that's not a lot of time to... You know, it's 20... 20 yeah. times yeah. they get to see her before she's 18, right? And when you put it that way, it's like almost a huge awakening of really that's that's it. You're going to see her, she's going to see your grandparents 20 more times or if I'm doing my math right. So I, I, I like that because it, it shakes us a, a little bit. Totally. Realizing. And what it does is it does two things for making you invest your time better. One is it makes you carve out and protect and make the time for that so like knowing that it's only a couple times a year like if there's a busy season and the kids get into sports like it it might be easy to be like oh you know what we're not going to do the visit this year Mm -hmm. like next year no when you realize that they're limited you will for sure make sure that you make the trip for in our family it is face facetime on sundays yeah with the grandparents 
making sure like even though it's a Sunday evening, super busy, you know, getting stuff ready for the week, it's easy to be like, oh, you know, what? Let, let's just hold off until next week. But when you realize that it's actually there aren't many more of these opportunities left to make the time. So you prioritize and make the time. Mm -hmm. But also when you're spending the time, the way you engage in that time is very different when you realize that it is there that there are so few left it it really makes you savor it so sort of yeah. picking up on what i was saying before that when you recognize the time is limited it makes you savor it more it's mm -hmm. you soak it up you pay attention you that sort of to-do list in the back of your mind gets quieted because this is the stuff that matters yeah it 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 creates a sort of attitude you know attitude of gratitude with within us and I feel like everything else in our life goes better when we are grateful, at least in my experience, when I'm grateful and I have that sort of feeling of gratitude in all my interactions and how I see my work and how I see my relationships, my day tends to go better, even when there's challenges around me. And this was actually the other topic that I wanted to bring up because we talk about this quite a bit in our curriculum. We talk about deeply seeing and having, which that means is I have a deep purpose. I have a why because you mentioned meaning mm -hmm. and our life starts to take on new meaning when we, you know, take advantage of this time. When we see time a certain way, our life has a whole new meaning. And we talk a lot about meaning. We talk a lot about purpose and why. We also talk about fears and potential and what gets in the way of us achieving our potential. And, and part of that is the suffering that we'll experience. Everybody in life experiences suffering. It's kind of our great equalizer. We all experience different variations of suffering but suffering is suffering. And we can choose to, which we call and we say in our institute, we can suffer well, where we allow that to be a catalyst for us to help us become a better person, to find more meaning and deeper meaning in our life, or we can allow it to be an inhibitor. And this goes to the agency that you talked about. It can be an inhibitor to us where we creates resentment, resentment, bitterness, anger. And so I was curious, and this will probably have to be our last little little few minutes here discussing this, but I was curious on what relationship you see or how do you see time, the way that we're talking about it, impacting suffering? Because suffering sometimes can be brief or it can happen over the span of several years. What would you say about how our perception of time impacts whether we suffer through things poorly or whether we suffer through them well? I mean, yeah. how would you how would you look yeah at that? and so i i would actually i i love this question because it, it gives me the opportunity to share the fact that our happiness is a choice we do have agency in how we feel in the day-to-day -day and how satisfied we feel mm -hmm. about our lives and yes circumstances do come into play but we have choice into in terms of how we um react to respond to to those circumstances and we have choice in how we spend our time. Yeah. Now, to sort of contextualize this even more within the research, if you look at what are the sort of categories of inputs into our happiness, and again, with happiness, how we feel in our days as well as how satisfied we feel about our lives, there is a big influence of genetics. So our inherited disposition has a, a big influence and we don't have control over that. So yeah. like, your natural disposition. Are you more cheery, mm -hmm. seeing the glass is half full? Are you more grumpy, mm -hmm. seeing you know that there is an empty part of the glass? So our disposition has a big effect. Our circumstances 
have an effect, but significantly less than we predict. And these circumstances are those things that happen to us that are in in our lives. And you can sort of our income level gets grouped into this, like whether or not you are married, whether, you know, you're super attractive or, you know, whether the circumstances of, you know, the pandemic happened to us. And that has an effect, but not as much as we think. And then the last category is the one that I am so interested in because it's the part that we have the most control over. And that is what we do and what we think about in the day to day. And I frame it how do we spend our time and how do we engage in that time we spend has a big effect on our happiness, more than our circumstances. And we have control over those things. We have control over what, like, there is more discretion in how we spend our time than we, than we think. But we absolutely have control in terms of how we engage in the time yeah. and what we are focusing on. And so with that, that is what gets us through. So bad stuff will happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that the last few years. Bad stuff happens. But how you choose to engage in the day-to-day, what you choose to focus on, that will make it so that you are sort of more resilient. You get through that bad stuff without it destroying you. Yeah. That you get through that bad stuff and have become stronger. And actually the role of meaning. So happiness is this singular biggest predictor Mm -hmm. of the extent. So happiness, how we feel, how positive we feel is a single biggest predictor of whether we have a sense of meaning. But negative experiences can contribute to having a sense of meaning too, mm-hmm. but only if we learn from them. If yes. we sort of say like this happened, but actually like figure out a way that yeah. you became stronger or you learned something mm-hmm. from it so that it then contributes to having a sense of things making sense yeah. and growth. So all to say we can choose our happiness. Yeah. And by like, I I think the most direct way to do that is figuring out how we spend our time and how yeah. we engage in the time we spend. Yeah, it's incredibly empowering and liberating to to yeah. know that we can choose our happiness. That these that you call them the, the, our disposition and circumstances are minimal in comparison to our agency to choose. And I love that. I the power of choice is something I've always been been interested in. I just love the tie that you are making to time because it is so connected. Probably one of the most recently, the last few years, one of the most influencer, influential, you know, thinkers to me is long past, but Viktor Frankl, and he talks mm-hmm. a lot about suffering. And, and uh, you know, he, he, he's, he talked about the three types of meaning that we can get. And I've shared this on so many other episodes, so sorry for returning listeners. I repeat this a lot, but the first type of meaning we can get is through having a work to do. You know, if you just have something to do and use your time, it gives you some sort of a meaning, you know, you're just doing something, you have a work to do. And, but he also said that's not sustainable form of meaning because what if your work disappears, then your meaning's gone. And so he said, there's a nut, there's a deeper one, which is connection, you know, connection, human connection is another and deeper form of meaning. But he also says, well, what if that goes away? Because here's coming from a Holocaust survivor, which, you know, he had his, his parents and his wife all died. So he had nobody. And then people that he was making connections to in the camps, they would die. 
So he was experiencing that human connection. Sometimes, you know, you can be connected to them, obviously, after, you know, if you, you believe in afterlife, whatever it is, you can feel a connection. But the direct connection of I'm going home to this person and I, I have to live and do the things that I do to provide for my family kind of a thing, that can be taken from you and it, in a myriad of ways for him in a horrible way, right? So he said that he discovered that's not enough to have sustainable, lasting meaning. And that's when he landed on our suffering is the greatest source of finding the deepest and most sustainable type of meaning. And he, he, you know, he said things like, we should never wish for suffering, but when it happens, we should see it as a gift because it's, it's going to qualify us for deeper meaning if we choose to see it a certain way. And I think that's so powerful. And it's, it's liberating in moments when we feel the most trapped and we feel the most imprisoned, whether it's by our time, by our circumstances, by our disposition, by relationships, by whatever the case is, that the most liberating thing can be the paradox in it all. And so I, anyways, I love, I love everything you've talked about. We got to end because I got to, we got to go get ready for this banquet tonight. <laughs> um, I could keep talking for for another hour or so. Maybe down the road, we, we have to do another episode <laughs> or something. But I've loved this conversation. It's been one of my, one of my favorite episodes so far. I'm just diving into these concepts because they're very fascinating to me personally. And I think anybody that's listening is going to have, like me, a page of notes and plenty of thoughts because time is something we all have in common. Yes, we do. <laughs> and we share it. <laughs> we share it. And I have enjoyed our time that we shared right now. So thank you for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. And thank you in advance for for the uh, keynote you're going to give tonight. I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. Great. So thank you. And thanks for everybody who's listened in today. Lots to think about. So I don't even need to need to give any prompts for, for you to consider. I'm sure you have many. But uh, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, be safe.